We, we started last week, if you remember, a, a short series on uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and um, I'm going to continue in that this evening. Um, and we're going to look at the first few verses of this. We said as the reading first 17 verses, but I'm really not going to do all 17, just uh, the first few. So I'm going to uh, read these to you, and then we'll have a look at it together. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law will be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Let me just set the context for this reading this evening and um, uh, what Paul is trying to say to us. Um, uh, Paul uh, is one of the most prolific writers of letters in the New Testament. He wrote 14 uh, different letters, and if you add the chapters up in those 14 letters, you get to around 100 chapters that he's written. Probably, if you were able to talk to him and say, what is the chapter that everything hinges on? What is it that everything focuses in on that he's been trying to communicate he would probably say Romans chapter 8. It is considered to be one of the most significant chapters uh, in the Bible. And uh, uh, the reason for this for Paul is that he's just spent the last seven chapters setting the scene for this one chapter. He's been talking about the power of sin. Uh, and, And this chapter begins... For him, uh, what it means to live this new life um, in Christ. He begins the book of Romans uh, by saying this. He says, this is a letter from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, uh, chosen to be sent to be an, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's what it's about. Paul says right at the beginning, this is what it's about. It's about good news. It's about the church being good news. It's about the community of people being good news. It's about sharing good news. And then he goes on in the next uh, six chapters, seven including chapter one, to set the stage for what he believes is the answer to living that good news. The first seven chapters of Romans are dominated by one word, and the word is sin. They're dominated by man's current state. So in chapter one, uh, there's a description of God's anger at sin and its destructive nature. In chapter two, there's a description of God's judgment on sin and what he wants to put right. In chapter three, there's the claim that we're all sinners, that we, we've all, we all fall short, and actually there's a level playing field under which we all work. In chapter 4, it describes God's desire 
to enable forgiveness to happen uh, because of our sin. In chapter 5, he describes how sin came into the world through one man, and the answer to that sin is through one man. It's through uh, Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, he talks about sin's power and how sin's power uh, needs to be broken and how it's broken through Jesus. And in chapter 7, he tells us how God's law reveals our sin and our sinful natures as uh, human beings. And he concludes chapter 7 with these words. He says, I've discovered this principle of life, that what I want to do, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Does anybody else here ever do that? It's a few yeses. Any no's? No. I love God's law with all my heart, he says. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to Christ. He sets the scene. He says, look, sin dominates. Sin is an umbrella under which many of us live. But he says that actually the answer is in Jesus Christ. I think they're quite incredible verses. Paul's saying that he wants to obey God's law, but he's a slave to sin. This is the Paul who is whipped and beaten and rejected. This is the Paul who's mishandled and misunderstood and stoned. This is the Paul who's given his life to follow Christ more than many other people would have given their lives over as a witness. And he says this, he says, I can't do it on my own. I need God's help. And I think he spent these seven chapters getting to this point, describing every aspect of mankind, basically saying, We need God's help. We can't do it on our own. We can't expect to do it on our own. And that's what he introduces in chapter 8. He says, look, if you want this good news and you accept the fact that you're someone who does wrong in your life and you acknowledge that you need someone to save you, Jesus Christ is the one who will save you. But you need help living out his life. And the answer to that is through his spirit that he gives to us. Chapter 8, he introduces and talks about the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit 21 different times in chapter 8. In the first 11 verses, he mentions the Spirit 10 times. For Paul, the Spirit that helps us to live this life is the answer to the previous seven chapters. It's through Jesus, by the Spirit, he says. And Paul is building on two statements, two propositions here for the Christian life. He says, look, we can, despite the fact that I've discovered this principle in, in, in life, he says, despite the fact that, that, that when I want to do uh, what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. He says, despite that, I've discovered I can live a blameless life. I can live a life without blame. And secondly, he says, I can live a life without blemish on my heart. Let me explain those two 
propositions to you because they depend on two prepositions. They depend on two other things. The first thing he says is that actually uh, God, through Jesus Christ, is the answer to living a life without blame. Jesus uh, Christ uh, is this preposition to living a life without blame. It's through him that we're justified by faith. It's through him that we find salvation. It's through him we get good news. It's through him that we begin to live lives that are fully saved. And the second one is according to the Spirit. We can live a life without blame because of who Jesus is. He says we can live a life without blemish according to the Spirit. It's about the Spirit coming into our lives. Why? Because it's the Spirit that came to fulfill the law, which is something that we can't do, so that our lives, through the Spirit, will be seen as pure and holy. And I want to look at these two things fairly quickly with you this evening. First is this, we can live a life without blame. Paul says this, so now, having said, having just said, I've discovered this principle, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong, he says, but so now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. None, none at all. So often Christians walk around as though we're condemned. But we're not. There is no condemnation. Because of Jesus Christ, we are set free. Because of Jesus Christ, our lives are released. Because of Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Condemnation, to condemn someone, literally means to judge one, someone, to pass sentence on someone, to damn them, to write them off. You know, remember the book of Daniel, when Daniel is thrown in the lion's den, the same word used for, that Paul uses here is the word used for Daniel there. Condemned to death in the uh, lion's den. The same word here is used for Jesus Christ when he's condemned to death on the cross. You're judged as having done something wrong. There's a finality of life. But here there's none of that for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. Paul's been saying there's this huge problem for these last seven chapters. Therefore, because of our sin, we rightly deserve condemnation. Because of everything that's going wrong, we rightly deserve that. But he says, but because of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to him. We often feel condemned, don't we, in life? We can feel put down, we can feel unworthy or unqualified. I don't know if you've ever felt that. You're in a different situation. Oh, I don't know if I should be here. You know, see how it, how it feels in different circles. Condemnation is part of the everyday language of our lives in so many areas. I think there's actually a, a universal fear of condemnation. I think we fear being condemned by our friends. We fear being judged. We fear being excluded. We fear being left out. It's true from when you're very young. You know, it, children can be so cruel to one another, actually. Uh, even when they're tiny and in the playground. You're not coming to my party. I mean, they say that when they're about two. I don't know. You know, you're not on my list anymore. And they can start condemning one another. Maybe not two. Maybe it's four. I forget when they start to speak these days. But you know, somewhere around then. 
We fear being left out, being excluded. We fear the sins in our lives being exposed and are exposed and our lives found wanting. And we talk, don't we, in life? We, people do good deeds and they say, well, there's another brownie point for me. You know, we want to add the good stuff up because I fear being condemned. Uh, most of us uh, thirst, actually, for the approval of others. Uh, and I think this often comes from a profound feeling of, of not coming up to the mark. We seek people's approval uh, in our lives. We live a life of comparison often, don't we? We compare ourselves with others. Uh, you know, I don't want to be judged at the end. I, I don't want to be found wanting, so I, I compare my life. And I think, well, I'm a bit better than so-and-so. You know, I, I look at how they live. I mean, I'm, I'm better than they are. And I look at how they... You know, look at, look at... Think of a murderer. I'm much better than a murderer. You know, think of a, a thief. I'm better than a thief. Think, think of... A rapist, I'm better than a rapist. Think of you think of anybody, I'm better than them, but we play that comparison game. We think, well, we all think we're all right, but actually, we're not necessarily all right. We're not called to compare ourselves to anybody else, but rather to compare ourselves with a living God. And he says in Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and all fall short. There's a level playing ground, play, playing field that we. Uh, live in. Paul says that when you compare yourself to Jesus Christ, then all have fallen short. None of us come up to the mark. In my uh, role as a pastor, interestingly, I've I spend time often with people who are near death. And when people are near death, even an atheist looks for reassurance that God will smile upon them. It is an extraordinary thing. I don't believe in God all my life, they say. It's not true of everybody, I know, but often true when I've sat with people and they say, uh, what, how do you think God will treat me? And I think, well, you don't believe in him, so it doesn't matter, does it? You know, and that what people are looking for are reassurance. At the end of the day, we all want reassurance. None of us want to be condemned. C.S. Lewis describes it like this when he talks about God making us right. He says this, God has forgiven the inexcusable within us. God makes us right. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, God makes us right. So Paul is able to say, in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Don't forget, Paul was the one who oversaw the murder of Christians. Paul was the one that sentenced innocent people to death. Paul was the one that was really cruel to people. And he says, there's now no condemnation. There's now no condemnation. God's mercy and grace have triumphed. No condemnation means that we don't get our just deserts. No condemnation means we're justified, we're acquitted, we're made right. 
There's now no obstacle between us and God. It's an offer to you and me. It's offered to the rich, the poor. It's offered to anybody who will hear it from any nation. We can live a life without blame because there is no condemnation. But that no condemnation, living a life without blame, is dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who takes our condemnation. The condemnation that sent was, has been spent on Jesus, which was the event that changed history, the event of Golgotha 2,000 years ago. For those who choose Christ, and that is what Paul has learned, those who say yes to Christ, there is no condemnation. When we are in Christ, then the benefits of his death are given to us. I'm sure you all know the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For everyone, uh, for God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. He sent his son into the world to take our condemnation, not to judge, but to save to draw us in. John Stott describes it like this. In Christ, grace is expressed. His grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. It's in Christ. Paul has discovered whatever was before in his life, that there is now no condemnation. He can live a life that is blameless. So my first proposition is that we can live a life of no condemnation. But it's dependent upon the preposition, it's about Jesus Christ. The second proposition is that we can live a life without blemish. It says this in verse 4 of our reading. It says he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. We can live a life without blemish. In other words, we can live lives with pure hearts. You know, there are two very important tenets of faith. One is to get right with God, and the second is that we are to become blameless in the way in which we live our lives. If you use theological language, then it's all about justification. That's through Christ, there's now no condemnation. And then sanctification. Through the Spirit, we live this life that we've now entered through justification. Does that make sense? We're saved by Christ, justified just as if I'd never sinned. There is now, therefore, because it's just as if I'd never sinned, no condemnation on me. Therefore, I live, try to live a sanctified life, a life through the Holy Spirit. The question is, are we going to live that life. We can accept the no condemnation if we choose justification of God, if we choose to say yes to Jesus Christ. And if we choose to say yes to the Spirit, then the process of sanctification begins in our lives. And Paul highlights that we can't live by the law. He says you you can't fulfill all the law. You can't achieve it. He says that throughout scripture. We, we can't fulfill the law, but in Christ, the law was fully fulfilled. 
Therefore, when we step in Christ, the law is fulfilled within us. And the Spirit enables us to live this new life. The Spirit fulfills the law and the requirements of the law in our lives. It's by the Spirit. I can't remember uh, who asked it many years ago, but someone asked this. He said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? In other words, it's no good just saying yes to Jesus. Justification. Because it is. It's good. But Paul acknowledges, and Jesus invites us in through all his teaching, to say not just say yes, but to say I'm going to live this out in my life. I'm going to live the process of sanctification. There's therefore enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian. Paul himself is able to do that. He says, imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. I've always found that such a challenge. That Paul was able to say, if you look at me, you'll see Jesus. Can people say that of your life? Of my life? Probably no good you answering that question. You need to ask it of the person who is closest to you and see what they say. Say, am I like Jesus? If they laugh, you know you have a way to go. But it is a process of sanctification. We're working towards it. The Spirit is the one that enables us to work towards this place of being like Jesus. And Paul realized that we can't save ourselves and nor can we sanctify ourselves, which is why he ended chapter 7 with that verse that I read earlier that he continues to do wrong. There are some people in uh, some churches where they really don't believe in the work of the Spirit today. And so you get Christians who live this very earnest and sincere life. You know, we, we try to live this really good life all the time. And I take my hats off to them because I think it's jolly hard work, or it must be jolly hard work. Uh, and they try to fulfill all the requirements of the law. And when you look at those people, I think they look so intense. They look as though their pants are three sizes too small and they're sucking on a lemon at the same time, you know. Everything's really, you know, intense in their lives. Well, this is how we're to live. Well, that's not what Jesus invites us to. He doesn't invite us to a painful journey. He invites us to an adventure in life. And the adventure is by the Spirit, opening our lives to the work of the Spirit, saying yes will allow the Spirit to shape us and make us and mould us ever a bit more like our Saviour Jesus, who is the one we are to imitate. And the Spirit enables to walk like Jesus walks. I was going to do a visual demonstration here, but I won't do that. But I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure everybody has, the lots of young people these days wear their trousers halfway down their backsides. I have such fun watching that. 
I know it's not true of any of the young people here. Well, no, it is actually. But you know how they walk. And this is the thing. This is the thing. They walk with their trousers halfway down the backside. And they have to walk like this. It's true. Otherwise, the trousers will fall down. So they walk like this. And then every now and then they go, like that, to pull it up a bit more. And then they walk. It's like, you know, you, they're walking in the most weird way. I watched them. I watched them. I'm going up the high street. I watched a guy the other day. His trousers were down below his bottom. I was thinking, why did you bother putting them on? I mean, that's ridiculous. But he was walking like this just to hold them up. I was thinking, a belt just cost you a fiver. A belt, you know. It will keep them up there. No problem. You can wear braces if a belt's not good. But, you know, do something, man. But you, they're walking like this. See, and they walk wrongly, and I think there's going to be hip trouble later in life, I'm sure. <laughs> now, my youngest son this week, <clears throat> he went for a, a trip with my wife, lovely wife, Lynn's, and, and they went up. Uh, it, it, he had a day off school, and they, uh, she said, well, what would you like to do? So I would like to go up to central London. I'd like to go to Buckingham Palace, and I'd like to go to um, uh, the Houses of Parliament. So she said, okay, let's do that. So they went up for a afternoon and she said they we got there and she said he he stood outside Buckingham Palace and she said we stood outside there for nearly an hour and she said every five minutes I'd say to him have we had enough now he said no and he just look at all these things happening you see and uh, uh, they walked they walked um, uh, through they went past um, uh, uh, up to um, uh, the houses of Westminster and uh, as they were coming from Buckingham Palace, they went through St. James's Park, and they were coming past Horse Guards Parade. And he said, as they were coming past Horse Guards Parade, he said they were doing the changing of the guard. Four o'clock on a Monday afternoon. So he said they were straight in there and watched the changing of the guard. And he said, Isn't it? and people were in the way, and the soldiers coming past, they said, make way for the soldiers, or whatever word they used. And people had to scatter. I said, they know how to walk. They don't walk like this. They don't do that. They're not allowed to wear their trousers down below their bottoms. They walk straight, like properly, you know, when it's good for your back and your hips and things like that. And I often think it would be quite good, wouldn't it, just to put some of our young people with some soldiers for a day and see how the walking changed, how the clothing changed. You know, I, I bet within half an hour they'd have their trousers up and a belt on, you know, this is very uncomfortable. Now, the thing is, if you put someone who wore their trousers halfway down their bottom with a soldier, the person who wore their trousers halfway down the bottom would change, not the soldier. The thing is, we walk with the Spirit. And often, as Christians, we walk in a way that isn't always right. Would that be true? You don't always do. Even Paul says it. When I want to do what is right... I sometimes find I'm not doing what I want to do. I do what is wrong and my walk isn't quite right. But I've learned, he says, that the more I walk with the Spirit, the more I learn to walk right. The more the Spirit helps to shape me and mold me and make me more like the Jesus Christ that I'm trying to imitate. So that when people look at me, they'll see Jesus. And if you asked me, was there enough evidence to convict me 
of being a Christian? I say, yes, there is. Because I've learned to walk with the Spirit who reshapes the way I walk to be a little bit more Christ-like that others might see the Jesus in me. And he says, and because I've learned that, there is now no condemnation. And I can live this blameless life and walk this life without blemish because I rely on the power of the Spirit and in the salvation and justification of my Savior, Jesus. I want to finish with a quote from Bono, who is in conversation with an author. And he says this, I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma and into one of grace. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics or physical laws that every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It is clear to me, he says, that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm actually sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that. As you reap, so you will sow sort of stuff. Grace defines reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is, a very, is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff in my life. I'd be in big trouble if karma was finally going to be my judge because karma doesn't excuse my mistakes. I'm holding out for grace, he says. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope upon hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Paul, one of the greatest evangelists ever, says, I hope I don't have to depend on my own goodness because when I try to do it, I do wrong. But I know that if I give my life to Christ and I walk by the Spirit, I can become like Jesus. Bono says, I hope it doesn't have to depend on my own religiosity. I'm holding out for the grace of God that saved me and the Spirit that walks beside me to help me to become a little more Christ-like in all that I do. We can live a life without blame. There is now no condemnation if we live a life with Christ at the center of it. And we can live a life without blemish if we live a life by the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together, shall we?